The sermon I am about to read this morning was prepared by Reverend Rolf Den Hollander, minister of the Canadian Reformed Church at Grassy, Ontario. And the text for this morning is 1 Peter 2, verses 4 through 10. So 1 Peter 2, verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So far. <clears throat> After the sermon, we will sing hymn 47, stanzas 2 and 3. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Peter makes a rather sudden switch in our text to imagery far different, it appears, from what he had just written about before these verses. You will see in verse 2, the image is of a newborn infant longing for pure spiritual milk. It's quite an image, that hunger and thirst for more of Christ through that living and abiding word of Christ. We can picture a baby craving milk, crying out and then sputtering in his eagerness to be satisfied. And we get what he means, longing for Christ. Now suddenly he's off to house imagery, stones and building and spiritual house. How did he go from there to here? But perhaps it's not that far removed after all. He's thinking infants and families. And families in the Bible are often spoken about as a house. Recall how God would build David's house, meaning his descendants. So as he writes about infants longing pure spiritual milk, he has family and houses on his mind. And so he proceeds to look at that house imagery from a different angle. And as he does that, he comes to a point of transition in his letter. Up to now, we've heard a few times about identity. This brings that to a climax. A climax that allows him to prepare for something else. He'll move on now to teach them how to live as exiles in a hostile world. They are exiles, but chosen by God. And that will have to impact the way they live. There's a purpose in their identity, a purpose that's hinted at and summarized already in our text. I preach that to you as su you summarized as follows. God chooses a people in Christ for a special purpose. First of all, we'll see that they are a new temple. Secondly, they gain a new identity. And thirdly, they have a new purpose. First, they are a new temple. 
<clears throat> Peter pictures the building of a physical house, and he applies that in spiritual terms. It would be tempting to begin by focusing on the people Peter is addressing. After all, he writes numerous times, you, you, you. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, you yourselves like living stones. But the moment he writes, you are being built, the focus changes, the perspective changes. The emphasis isn't on the people, but on God who is busy building, are being built. That's what we call a divine passive, where God is the one who is active. He is busy, busy building this house, this spiritual house. The last while we've been watching a house being built here on the church property. Stage by stage, piece by piece, it's being built. Location surveyed, hole dug, footing set, basement poured, basement formed, poured, stripped, and sealed. Supporting beams placed, floor joists laid, floor nailed down, walls framed, roof trusses arranged, plywood sheeting applied, and we'll watch where things go from there. Building pro projects in Peter's day progressed a little differently, and yet still, piece by piece, be it with different building materials. There was no basement like we know now, only the foundation. And then critical for the shape and strength of that foundation is the cornerstone. That's where the builder starts, finding the perfect stone on which and around which the rest of the home can be built. The kids probably know that from playing Jenga, right? If you take out one of the outside blocks on the bottom first, the whole tower gets tippy right away. It's like the cornerstone. You need a solid foundation. That's why Peter spends much time there in our text too. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And him, we go on to understand, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter quotes this from Isaiah 28, verse 16. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And Psalm 118, which we sang, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And in Acts 4, verse 11, Peter said very plainly, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. It's as though there are two houses being built here, the building of men and the building of God, or perhaps the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of Christ. It's Babel again, or a spiritual house. And men as builders have rejected Christ as cornerstone. That's how Peter puts it there in Acts 4 verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. They've looked and observed and tossed him aside as unfit. They rejected him when they handed him over to be crucified. And when he was banished outside of the city and hung on a cross, on, and then he was banished outside of the city and hung on a cross on Calvary. They'd rather build with, without God. See it still today. That's the image. Yet God has chosen him as precious, 
the cornerstone for this spiritual house. For he isn't just any stone. He's the living stone. To speak about stones is to think of dead, lifeless objects. Jesus Christ is the living stone because he is the one who was crucified, dead, and buried, yet on the third day rose from the dead, full of life and living still. He is now sitting at the right hand of God the Father from where he reigns and from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. Christ is the living stone, the cornerstone, chosen and precious, giving shape and strength to the rest of this building. With his cornerstone in place, God, the master builder, continues building stone by stone, or rather living stone by living stone. Because in Christ, we who were dead in our transgressions and sins are also made alive. That's something we've heard repeatedly through this letter already, often being brought back to our rebirth through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God then takes these living stones and builds them up as a spiritual house. That is, a place where God lives by his spirit. We don't find the word temple specifically here but he does go on to write about a holy priesthood. We can certainly understand the spiritual house to be reminiscent of the temple, only it's a new temple. Recall that he's writing to the elect exiles in the dispersion. They are chosen strangers scattered throughout the known world. Many of them were Gentiles who've come to faith in Christ and are learning much about God's work in the Old Covenant. And they've no doubt learned of this beautiful temple in Jerusalem that was unlike the temples they know for their pagan gods. Maybe they, scattered as they are, long for something like that. A beautiful temple in which to experience the comforting presence of God. No need. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. You, the people of the New Testament church, are the new temple, where God lives by his Holy Spirit through whom we share in the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Living stone by living stone, this new temple is being built. That's not only to make the readers think of themselves in their own local congregation. After all, they are scattered, dispersed. But no matter how far flung they may be across the reaches of this world, they are together being built up into this spiritual house, together with the living stones of all times and all places, it's a Catholic Christian church. That helps us keep in mind the grand picture of God's church building work too. Sadly for many today, the call to come to Christ comes only with promises of health and wealth and happiness. If only you believe in Christ, you will have happiness and prosperity in this life. What if you get sick, go bankrupt? Is faith in Christ false? Others may rightly reject that and still have very much of a temporal focus on benefits in Christ. Believe on him and you will have purpose in your life. There is comfort and hope and confidence. And that's true as long as we see there's far more. God is building this spiritual house with living stones on the living cornerstone of Christ. And the building will be complete when the last stone is laid. Every time someone comes to believe in Christ, we may say, that much closer to completion. 
No wonder, as we will see in a few moments, Peter prompts his readers then to share this glorious gospel. We long to see that building project completed, and we know ourselves to be instruments in the hand of the master builder to lay these living stones one by one. That's really Project Zion, isn't it? An immense building project to build a spiritual house. Drawn from Psalm 87, that of all the nations God would build his church living stone by living stone. <clears throat> if this is God's building project, can the hands of men destroy it? No. It ought to encourage these persecuted, suffering Christians in exile. Like living stones, they are built, being built up as a spiritual house, a new temple for God's spirit. What can man do to me? It's no less true today. In fact, they will only stumble and fall. More and more today, preaching Christ has become so watered down so as to not really be preaching Christ at all. Care is taken to stay away from anything that might bring offense. Yet we hear from Peter that the gospel of Christ is fundamentally divisive, foundationally, at the level of the foundation, divisive. Whoever hears of Christ can never leave untouched. You either believe in him as the, corner, the chosen cornerstone, or you stumble over him as a rock of offense. A stumbling, Peter says, that comes because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. People stumble over these words. What were they destined for? Disobedience or condemnation? Does this make God the author of sin? Peter lays side by side man's 100% responsibility and God's 100% sovereignty. They disobey God destines. They're held in perfect tension. God is the master builder. He chooses and selects his living stones and brings them to faith. But that is no excuse for those who disobey the word. The word they hear is the gospel of Christ, the cornerstone. But they stumble over it and refuse to obey. Then Jesus says in Luke 20, verse 18, Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Here then is implied a call to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. As a quote from Isaiah 28 says, Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And verse 7, So the honor is for you who believe. Believe then, beloved, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Through faith in him, we may hold on to this beautiful image of a glorious truth. God is building up a spiritual house. Take heart when you are part of God's temple. That will set the stage for more of Peter's instruction later. They do not need to be ashamed when others mock and ridicule them for believing in this man, Jesus, who was humiliatingly crucified. And nor do we. Instead, we show ourselves to be such living stones, full of life in the spirit, Deeply, deeply thankful to God that God's people have gained a new identity, which is our second point. In verse 9, Peter goes on to give a quick list of descriptions of his readers that almost leaves you breathless. He's coming back to something he's touched on already in verse 5. 
There he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. We might say, more movement of his imagery. He's gone from infants, part of a family or house, to the spiritual house, now back to the people within that house, only no longer a family in a family house, but the priesthood in the temple. John Calvin says, It is a singular honor that God should not only consecrate us as a temple to himself in which he dwells and is worshipped, but that he should also make us priests. A holy priesthood that is dedicated to God and set apart from the world. And he builds on that in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Clearly, belonging to Christ is not something that is deserved or earned. We will not boast about being included. You are chosen, Peter says. In God's sovereign decree, in his good pleasure, he chooses a people as his own. Here called the chosen race. We might define a race as a group of people that have a common ancestor. The Jewish race. It's why we speak about racism, discrimination between different people groups, that evidently have different ancestry. The Jews have Abraham as their father. We are a chosen race, but what a unique race that is. As John says in John 1 verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Ours is not a race sharing in a natural ancestry. We share one Father in Jesus Christ, God the Father, so that we are brothers and sisters through faith. As Christ is the chosen and precious one, verse 4, so are all who belong to God. What is more, they are a royal priesthood. Peter is picking up phrases that God used to describe his people Israel in Exodus 19. They were, in a way, in exile there, too, making their way to the Promised Land. God's New Testament church, his new Israel, is in exile, longing for the Promised Land. And they may cling with confidence to these descriptions. They are a royal priesthood that pulls two things together. Royal has to do with kingship and priesthood, of course. Service as priests again, kings and priests. The Messiah himself is both priest and king in the prophecy of Zechariah 6, verse 13. It is he who shall build the house of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. Christ is the priest king and so are all who belong to him. We might have a hard time connecting immediately to that kind of an image. In our catechism, we confess in Lord's Day 12 what that means for our task. As priests present ourselves a living sacrifice, as kings fight with a free and good conscience against sin and the devil in this life, and hereafter reign with him eternally over all creatures. But what about as an identity, not just as a task? See, there being See, being called royal isn't as relevant to us. Sure, we have a royal family, but how much do we relate to that? 
At the same time, we do know that to be part of the royal family requires that you're related by blood. You have to be in the royal line of the House of Windsor, reigning the last hundred plus years. Not just anyone can be called royalty. Similarly, the priests. Think of the Old Testament. Only the Levites could serve as priests. That's why the Lord condemned Jeroboam too when he set up worship in Dan and Bethel and appointed his own priests. Only the Levites, not just anyone. There is then a certain status attached to it, doubly so as a royal priesthood. How do you say to your average citizen, you are a royal priesthood? <clears throat> Maybe for Peter's readers, they'd have to think too of Caesar and the imperial house. He was king. His house was royalty. But no, Peter says, you are royalty. Maybe that's a bit like telling the average Canadian citizen that they are prime ministers, or the menial labor, laborer in a factory that he's really a CEO. There's this dramatic difference in status. Suffering, persecuted, ridiculed, scorned Christians will not be ashamed. After all, just consider their identity. They are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. It's an identity that comes with a glorious status. No wonder Peter can say, so the honor is for you who believe. There's nothing to hide behind, nothing to be ashamed of. It's true for us too. We are a royal priesthood, priest kings like Christ himself. It may happen more that being known as a Christian in the workplace will affect getting jobs, contracts, promotions, raises. It might be harder to climb the social ladder, so to speak. But we can be content at the bottom. We are a royal priesthood. In Christ, the highest status imaginable, with nothing to be ashamed of. Not only that, Peter continues, you are a holy nation. That fits with his call to holiness, because God is holy, only a short piece back. That means they are unlike any other nation. The term nation brings to mind physical boundaries, a certain territory, but you are a holy nation. The citizens of this nation have a heavenly citizenship and they live by the laws and rules of Christ their King. Whenever the laws of their earthly country clash with the laws of their heavenly King, they let their holiness be known. They subscribe to a different set of laws set apart for God. So the Christian who becomes involved in the politics of this earthly nation won't compromise his Christian faith for that nation because he belongs to a holy nation. And there's more. They are a people for his own possession. Again, words drawn from God to Israel. Here is the new Israel, Jews and Gentiles, Christians in the New Testament church who are God's own possession, purchased in the blood of Christ. Four loaded terms of identity that pound home a comprehensive truth. Remember who you are and whose you are. Before Peter will go on to send them out into the world to prepare them for life in the world, they must cling to this. Once you are not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 